I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 98 for February 2022, our first one of the year. I'm Duncan. And I'm Simon. And 1998 had some enduring films from the decade. Edward Norton's ferocious turn as a white supremacist in American History X. One of the Coen brothers' most loved films, The Big Lebowski. Lars von Trier's, is it redundant to say, controversial? The Idiots. <laughs> Guy Ritchie announced his presence with a bang in Lock, Stock and Two Smoke and Barrels, while Darren Aronofsky announced his with Pie. Terry Gilliam filmed the unfilmable Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Peter Weir and Jim Carrey brought us The Truman Show, the hugely fun magical Serbian film Black Cat, White Cat, cult hits like Dark City and Run, Lola, Run, Sam Raimi's excellent thriller A Simple Plan, Spike Lee and Denzel joined forces for the basketball drama He Got Game with a great Public Enemy soundtrack, Steven Soderbergh re-emerged from the shadows with Out of Sight. Mm. Um, he'd really promised to take Hollywood by storm 10 years before with Sex Lies videotape. And he was about to make good on that promise, starting out with uh, Out of Sight, uh, which also kind of confirmed George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez's box office draws yeah. uh, with a trend-setting David Holmes soundtrack. Uh, John Frankenheimer's seminal car chase movie, Ronin. Uh, there was Wes Anderson's first of many collaborations with Bill Murray and Rushmore. The Farrelly brothers made Cameron Diaz's unusual hairstyling famous in <laughs> There's Something About Mary. The dual Elizabethan films Shakespeare in Love and uh, with um, Gwyneth Paltrow and, of course, her friend Kate Blanchett and Elizabeth. And the dual World War II epics Saving Private Ryan and Terence Malick's The Thin Red Line, a film that demands rewatching and remains one of my favourite war films. There was Neil LeBute's sophomore effort, Your Friends and Neighbours, uh, replete with an opening that has Apocalypta's symphonic interpretation of Metallica's Enter Sandman, which should signify the vicious hearting beats beneath the civilised veneer. Him at home with a Patrick Bateman-levelled performance from Jason Patrick. But even <laughs> but even Neil LeBute couldn't contend with the absolute pit of despair that was Todd Salons' fearless ensemble comedy, The Pitch Black Happiness. Um, and for completely different reasons, there was an equally tough watch of The Avengers with Ray Fiennes and Uma Thurman. <laughs> As uh, John stated him appeal. And 1998 was very much the year I became aware of Brendan Gleeson. Uh, appearing in three good Irish films, John Borman's The General, the gangster comedy I Went Down, and Neil Jordan's excellent The Butcher Boy. We wax rhapsody over that every chance we get. Um, it's a film I really love re-watching. Brilliant, hilarious, shocking. At its heart is a really commanding child performance from debutant Eamon Owens that carries the film. So... If you've heard us talk about it before and you haven't seen The Butcher Boy, uh, seek it out now. Um, so, that also, 98, also the year of Lethal Weapon 4. Um, and, and I say this because I went down the cinema to watch Lethal Weapon 4, missed the screening, and so we saw the adventures instead. Ah, oh, that's great. I mean, I barely remember Lethal Weapon 4, but... Um, I'm thankful that I managed to watch it in the yeah, cinema so I yeah. didn't have to watch The Avengers. Yeah, I could, exactly. I could put it off for, 
I don't know, like 20 years or something. Yeah, it was back in the day where you didn't know what you were getting into with the film, largely, you know? Yeah. So it's just like, oh, well, this looks like it'll be fun, and I like the TV show, so why not? Yeah, the only way you'd see a trailer is if you saw a trailer before yep. another movie, yeah, right? Exactly. Basically. Yeah. 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 Uh, look, the postmodern ripples caused by the almighty splash of Scream spread into 1998, a year that gave us The Faculty, uh, another Kevin Williamson script, Urban Legends, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, and a pair of sequels that seem just unimaginable without the horrid jumpstart of Scream, Halloween Water and The Delicious Bride of Chucky. <laughs> Halloween um, Water. Yes, uh, that's what it's called, right? Yeah. Um, elsewhere, the carpenter collapse continued <laughs> with the woeful vampires. Right. Uh, no ghosts of Mars, not yet, but we're only a few years away. <laughs> Species got a sequel. And Affleck was the bomb in Phantoms. <laughs> Significantly, perhaps, this was the year of Blade, Marvel's first superhero film to break big, a full 10 years before Iron Man, and with a black lead to boot. Uh, there's some great vampire action in the film, and the sequel, directed by Jalama del Toro, would, in my opinion, be even better. Though surely we can all agree that Blade Trinity was the absolute worst. <laughs> uh, even if the onset stories are the best, yeah. you know, that's, there's some great stories about um, just... You know how bad that production was and how painful it was. You well, know? Wasn't it like um, they, they basically wrote um, Snipes out of his own series, right? Yeah, the idea was that it would be uh, uh, Jessica Beale and Ryan Reynolds would yeah. go forward in that series as the new characters, yeah. and he was just disdainful and just wanted nothing to do with anything. Barely showed up, you know. Yeah, barely made an effort, and it shows. Yeah, um, yeah, it's hilarious. And, and who can blame him? You know, I mean, he, I mean, ah. like I say, Blade hit at the box office. Blade Two was success, even yep. more successful. Yeah. So then to turn around and kind of go, oh, well, you're not, we don't, you know, we want to go with these young. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 20-year-olds. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, Wesley had, had fought really hard, you know. He had, he had, he had held totally. on to his tax money and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he was huge at that point as well, mm. right? Yep. I mean, he did Passenger 57 around this time and White Men Can't Jump, so he was he was a yep. big box office draw. Yeah, yeah. It is a real shame. You're quite right. Yeah. What could have been, eh? Yeah. Uh, I'll skip past the Psycho remake Ooh. and get to what was the real story of horror in 1998, and that is... J-horror. Uh, Japanese horror hit hard, primarily through Hideo, Ni Hideo Nakata's Ringu, the story of a cursed VHS tape that kills the viewer seven days after they watch it. Uh, the Hollywood remake was fantastic, I thought, but the Japanese original was an absolute must-see. In the day, Ringu was, was pretty hard to find, often uncovered as a bootleg, which is what, what a way, what a yeah, perfect way right. uh, to watch a film about a killer VHS tape. Eh? Yeah. So for most of us, Nakata's film came to us later on a tidy-up DVD. The minimalist, dreamlike pace punctuated by pure horror became a staple of the subgenre. Such a wild counterpoint to the Japanese gore scene, you know? Mm. Uh, it's like there were, at least to this relatively, you know, horror outsider, uh, two Japanese horror styles, restrained, slow, atmospheric tales of dread, or hilariously graphic stories in which schoolgirls shoot geysers of blood from their amputated arms that then morph into chain stores. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of wild. That, 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 that is like my only... Y you know, uh, yeah. my only sense of what Japanese horror was at the time. Yeah. But Ringu wasn't the only great horror to come out of Japan in 98. And I'm not even talking about the ropey, quicky sequel, Spiral. Not to be confused with the year 2000 Japanese horror film, Spirals, <laughs> which is weird and, like, pretty awesome. I love that film. Uh, no, I'm talking about Tomi. And if you've watched Tomi, congratulations. Uh, finding a copy of that film a few years back made getting a hold of Ringu seem like a walk in a no doubt haunted by wet-haired Dead Girl Park. <laughs> Tomi was a huge hit in Japan, uh, where it had eight sequels to date. Wow. Uh, not so much in the rest of the world, 
But there's something about the soullessness in Miho Kanos' eyes as Tomi, the monstrous girl who bewitches her admirers to the point where they kill her, only for her to return over and over again. Wow. Uh, to do it all once more. It's not a film with the quality of Ringo. Uh, um, imagine what Nakata could have done with it. But the, prim- the premise, I've always thought, is just great horror material. Yeah, it is. Mm. Yeah, it's That's really great. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I always remember watching the Ringo. It was well after 98, though. I think it was. Like oh, by the time it got to us. Yeah, I think yeah. it was like 2002 or something. I sure, saw sure. It. Um, yeah, I remember the DVD, um, uh, the menu. With just the the well sitting there, yeah, and that was really cool. Like I remember just that being as freaky as anything in the actual movie. Just having that, I think you know, oh, we'll grab some popcorn or something, and just kind of knowing the premise of the thing, and that thing just going, yeah, in the background, yeah. Really but imagine if you'd had like a the bootleg VHS yeah. tape, and that's how you watched it. <laughs> That'd be perfect. Yeah, if this was released in the eighties, this would have been the absolute peak time. Imagine if that was released in like 1982 or something then. Yeah. You know, the the, the urban legends going around the playground oh. would just be, oh man, you can't watch that. Yeah. Or or if so-and-so's, you know, sister died because she watched that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, we were too old, but I wonder if those stories were going around if you were the right age. You Maybe, know, even, yeah. Even then, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So look, uh, what have you been watching? Well, I've uh, seen a few films because um had a few months since we've done the last podcast, but... The one I wanted to talk about was I saw Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. Oh, cool. I haven't got to it yet. Oh, cool. Well, I'll try not to yep. give it too much away, but the term love letter gets thrown around an awful lot in cinema, and I imagine it's the kind of term reviewers will be throwing at Wright's latest film. The uh, cinematography, costume, set design, hair and makeup, it's all first class and it practically glows. Uh, the film is set in contemporary times, but our heroine has fantasies that evolve into visions of being an Ingenue being seduced by the seedier side of swinging 60s London. Uh, Wright even cast some of the faces connected um, that made the 60s swing, uh, Terence Stamp and Diana Rigg, in her final film role. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so um, Thomas and Mackenzie and Anna Taylor-Joy both shine in their dual roles. Mackenzie doing the fish-out-of-water role especially well and Anna Taylor-Joy bringing presence to what could easily be a mere cipher of a character. Uh, The film has an interesting structure, gliding through the first half with a tone that teases the viewer with touches of, you know, repulsion, and then threatens to become quite abstract and surreal. So it depends on your taste if you're happy with the second half, instead running headlong into more traditional thriller territory, while still keeping the visual brilliance like a modern-day giallo film. Last Night in Soho reminds me of when we watched Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead, uh, where it is wonderful to see a director off the leash and able to indulge in their interests without restraint. Now, for me, Edgar Wright's style is more in style with me than Schneider, so it's easier to enjoy Wright's indulgences. The humour, the glamour, the dance and singing sequences, it doesn't just embrace its influences, it wears them like one of the dresses designed by our, by our heroine, but at the same time, Wright's humour and need to ground the story in quite a solvable mystery means that it never goes into the truly surreal or haunting places that something like its influences do. You know, I'm thinking Suspiria or Repulsion. Right. Yeah. Or any number of late 60s, early 70s European horror. That's what it's kind of touching on, but it, it doesn't quite go there. Yeah. Um, what is interesting is that Mackenzie's character starts out with real potential, given to flights of fancy, feeling like an outsider among her design school peers, um, and threatening to... De- descend into a demented state, but she kind of becomes a vehicle for the plot mechanics. 
but also Last Night in Soho is an enjoyable film and one I'd recommend. And writes Joie de Vivre comes across in almost everything he does. And he's always been a unique director. And But between this and Baby Driver, he is becoming a truly accomplished director. Mm. Um, so I recommend checking this one out. But yeah. um, it's not the masterpiece you might think it's going to be almost. I think that first half hour, I'm just like, wow, I'm getting transported to this different world. And it's a shame it doesn't yeah. quite commit to that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, no, that sounds fair enough. I wouldn't have gone into it um, expecting it to be a masterpiece, to be honest. Mm -hmm. but, um yeah, yeah. So, like, I'm, I'm not bothered by that. It, yeah. it looks great, and, yeah. and that's that's enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to see like a poster now for this that says, uh, like, it's got your name. Like, yeah. spoiler alert. It says, you know, if you loved Army, Army of the Dead, you'll love <laughs> Last Night in Soho. <laughs> I knew that. I knew I was going to get strange looks from you when I <laughs> when I made that comparison. But it it was just that experience of seeing a director completely unleashed. Yeah, just doing their thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like it's like when you watch Tarantino do a film. Yeah. You know, there, there's obviously no restrictions on him whatsoever. Yeah. But he's Tarantino. He's kind of earned that. Yeah, totally. And Wright's getting to that stage, which I think is really cool. Um, yeah, although yeah. Th this this didn't do that well, I understand. No, so, that's right. So um, whether he can keep that going, you know. Yeah. I mean, I hope so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's know. what I mean with this is it's kind of encouraging that he managed to get this done yeah. and it's clearly a labour of love and it doesn't look like there's been any compromise, which is yep. great, you know, especially for the, uh, the would-be director of Ant-Man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what could have been, eh? What could have been Edgar Wright's Ant-Man by way of the Cornetto trilogy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw a few different films uh, myself this month uh, from movies starring the great and luminous Greta Garbo to the latest blockbusters and while I can hardly recommend... 1926's Flesh and the Devil to fans of silent cinema. I imagine most of our listeners want to hear me talk about Matrix Resurrections. <laughs> Fair warning, folks. Some mild spoilers will follow. Uh, now, we talked about this film off mic a while back, and I remember saying I'd definitely see it. Mm -hmm. uh, after all, if it captured some of the magic of the original Matrix, we'd be in for a great time. And if it instead it went down a more Jupiter-ascending kind of route, uh, well, at least I wouldn't be bored, right? What I got was a film with three parts. Only one part of which I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. uh, in the opening act, we're introduced to Thomas Anderson, the successful but burnt-out creator of the award-winning video game trilogy, The Matrix. <laughs> he may be successful, but he still pines for his, the unobtainable woman who comes into his local coffee shop, a woman who happens to be Carrie Ann Moss. And then Anderson's vaguely arsehole-ish seeming boss announces that Warner Brothers are demanding they make a sequel to The Matrix, <laughs> and that if they refuse, well then, it'll get made with or without them. Now, this is the part of, film, of the film I was into. Lana Wachowski getting all cute and meta with her own creation and seemingly dissing the very studio that's making the film. <laughs> uh, Christina Ricci leading a brainstorm with creative jerks discussing how they'll need a new bullet time, which, yeah, it's kind of pretty much on point. Uh, the stuff, this stuff was fun for me, me because it made the film's options feel really open, uh, as if anything could happen from here, you know? Mm -hmm. And the idea that Lana Wachowski was making her own, like, Wes Craven's new nightmare well, perhaps simultaneously attacking her own studio. How could I not be out for that, right? Yeah, that's great. Alas, we then enter the Matrix again, and this is where it all goes wrong, uh, mostly because we've seen it all before. We're back in those sub-things, you know. Everyone has tatty jumpers on. Uh, Zion is now called IO, and it's no more interesting. Uh, worse, though, there are, there are changes. Uh, changes that necessitate Jada Pinkett-Smith in bad old-age makeup, uh, and poor... Poor Priyanka Chopra, uh, delivering page after page of exposition. You just won't care about. <laughs> Basically repeating the worst flaw of the Matrix saga. It's absolute conviction that you're as obsessed with the complex mythology as the film's writers are. 
it's a film that manages to be simpler and more complex at the same time, which is quite an achievement. Yeah. And then, of course, we're on to the action set pieces of the final act. And unfortunately, it's a bit of a wash. Like the guy in the brainstorm said earlier, you need a new bullet time, and Resurrections doesn't have one. Uh, the fights here are mostly sloppy, graceless affairs, a real tragedy given that even the much maligned Matrix sequels could usually manage a beautifully orchestrated fight scene with like a real sense of energy and clarity. Here, I struggle to follow the action, which cuts when it should stay wide, goes to other fights when we want to stay on one action sequence. Normally, that's a sign to me that the performers aren't really cutting it, you know, mm-hmm. that they're trying to create energy and excitement in the edit, which is a pretty dispiriting thought. So even though I believe that no matter what, I would enjoy Resurrections, I really didn't, you right. know. Keanu was a welcome presence again. Carrie Ann Moss was not. They're not helped by a thankless role. And the film they're in just gets worse when it should be picking up steam. Uh, like I said, I like the first third well enough, but then the film and I both seem to lose the passion for the whole venture. Mm. Yeah, yeah. This isn't one that I rushed out to go and see. I still haven't seen it, obviously, so it's interesting to hear you say that. Um, yeah, and I like the kind of almost critic-baiting opening that you're talking about. That's cool. Favourite part of the film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's always... It always seems... Like you say, the tatty jumpers and stuff is the problem. The problem with The Matrix is life outside The Matrix looks really bad. Yeah, plug in, man. Stay in there. <laughs> so, yeah, well, you want to be like Joey Pantoliano in the first one where he's like, just make me forget that I... Took, oh. the, took the pill, you know. Oh, look, absolutely, you know. Yeah, just yeah. plug me in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does. It always looks really rough, eh? It, yeah. it never gets any better. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, just like the, the the extending on the mythology when you're just like, oh, I, do I, am I going to get tested on this? You know, <laughs> I'm not really into it, and I, it's hard to follow, and uh, I, I don't know if it's important. Yeah. And maybe it is if they make more of them, but I can't see they will, and um, yeah. I really hope they don't. Mm. We just need more time. If we only had more time. You have all the time in the world. And here we are at No Comps, which is where we go out and see the latest films. Not exactly the latest, but we did go and see this at the cinema when it was released in December, which is No Time to Die. Yeah. Uh, directed by Kerry Joji Fukunaga, starring Daniel Craig, Leah Sadu. Rami Malek, Jeffrey Wright, and Lashana Lynch. Picking up immediately after the events of Spectre, Bond is enjoying a getaway with new love Madeline when assassins try to kill him. Bond survives, but convinced Madeline must have known about the attack, he deserts her and heads into a kind of exile. Five years later, FedEx later tracks Bond down, eager for his help in recovering a bioweapon that kills people by targeting their DNA. Bond is convinced to help his old friend, but on the way he encounters his replacement, Nomi, the new 007, here to carry out the same recovery operation for MI6. Bond is successful, but he and Felix are double-crossed. Felix is killed, and the weapon falls into the hands of the mysterious Lucifer Safin. Out for revenge, 007 returns to the UK to confront Blofeld, which leads him to meeting his ex-love, Madeline, again. Now, uh, there was a spoiler in there, uh, but there's going to be a lot of spoilers in this spoiler alert review, isn't there? There are going to be a lot of spoilers. We're going to spoil everything, so if you haven't seen No Time to Die... Go watch it now and then come back and have a listen. Yeah, but we figure it's been out a little while now. Yeah. And, yeah. like, I'm already seeing articles discussing... Yeah, uh, that's right. ...you know, things that are in this film that would be spoilers. Yeah, so fair yeah. warning, we're going to spoil everything. Okay, all right. <laughs> let's so, go. Let's go. So here we are at the end of Daniel Craig's era. And for the first time in the 007 series, a Bond swan song feels significant. 
Connery and Moore kind of drifted away from the series. Lazenby was a ship passing in the night, and Dalton and Brosnan weren't even aware that they were making the Goodbye Bond films <laughs> at the time. But Craig and Eon Productions, who have made all of the Bond films, are more than aware of the magnitude of this event. Look, I adore Casino Royale and Skyfall especially. I really like Quantum of Solace, and Spectre is okay with a really poor final act. So I kind of gave up a while ago expecting that they would ever return to the one-off adventure. Perhaps the only thing I was disappointed in Craig's era was that the one-off adventures never happened. Skyfall was, but the inspector's retconning somehow mm. meant that it wasn't. But I suspect the modern blockbuster trends of shared universes means that that will never return, regardless of Craig or mm. anything else. Now, let me preface this, my rambling, <laughs> by saying that there are moments in No Time to Die where I definitely think, I don't want to see that in Bond. That's my personal preference. That's not me saying they can't do this. Right. That's me saying I don't want them to do this. That's a preference. It's valid and should not have to be apologized for. Yes, I've been on the James Bond forums, so I want to say that this, I'm entitled to say it, and it doesn't make me a hater. And if you follow a sports team and they select a player you don't think should be in the starting team, that is a choice that you may disagree with. That doesn't mean you hate the team or stop being a fan. It just means you disagree with that style. So, you're not a real fan. <laughs> you're not a real fan. You're not a real Bond fan. I think the writers and the director have done an excellent job at unifying all the hanging threads of Craig's era into a fairly cohesive plot, especially thematically. Uh, Bond triggered by a sense of betrayal, Madeline haunted by the man who murdered her mother, Saffin's revenge for the killing of his family, the past being the death of us, with only Madeline being the only one to escape her past at the end. Within the confines of the Craig era, it's curious how... Mr. White, Madeline, Vesper, Saffin, Blofeld, and Bond are all connected and responsible in different ways for each other's creation or death. Mm. So I thought that that was kind of interesting and that they kind of managed to salvage something out of um, the just kind of often hodgepodge kind of feel of, of the Craig era. Yeah. Um, especially with its kind of shared universe aspirations. Yeah. Look, I'm just going to get this out of the way, so here we go. Uh, for me, No Time to Die has what I often call a villain problem, mm -hmm. or in this case, three problems, an inherited problem, mm -hmm. uh, one they've created on their own, I think, and a bit of a narrative issue. Now, in an effort to try and keep up with my Bond superfan co-host over here, <laughs> who's been on the forums, uh, I rewatched Spectre before watching uh, No Time to Die, which I saw twice. He, of course, watched all the Craigs again. <laughs> Because that's just the kind of obsessive freak he is. Anyway, I was halfway through Spectre, and I let Duncan know, look, I'm enjoying this. Great start, solid first half. Some of the things that I first found jarring weren't bothering me so much this time. Although I suspected the rest of my view might be different. And Duncan pretty much assured me then and there that it would. And he, of course, was right. Uh, the last third or so of Spectre is, is kind of a sinkhole. And the issue is mostly down to Christoph, Christoph Waltz. Blofeld, the reimagining of Bond's most infamous adversary as a petty, weak, emasculated bad guy that even 007 himself doesn't appear to take very seriously. And if he can't take Blofeld and his criminal organisation seriously, why should we? And yet, because Craig's Bonds are beholden to their own continuity, No Time for Die feels it has to do a, like a Rise of Skywalker and correct some of its predecessors' imagined wrongs by killing off Blofeld. This failed villain and his entire gaggle of goons is wiped out to make room for a new bad guy. The problem for the film is that this is time-consuming and kind of potentially confusing as well. I mean, how did Blofeld know Bond would be at the tomb of his dead first wife at the right time unless, as I now have to accept, Madeline was responsible? What do you think? <laughs> uh, maybe not. How did he orchestrate everything from his prison with his bionic eye that no one knew about? How did they not know about it? 
Uh, when did he get a chance to get that eye? Was it in the narrow window of time in which he home alone the old MI6 building in the previous film? <laughs> no matter. It's just bad enough that the Blofeld Spectre storyline eats up so much runtime for a character the audiences, I think, are, are fairly disinterested in. Mm. His demise is ultimately brought about by a new villain, Rami Malek's Lucifer Safin, which brings me to what I think of as a second problem. Safin is a man who remains off-screen for most of the film. And look, a shadowy bad guy cunningly orchestrating events from behind the scenes can make for an unnerving antagonist. It's not on the face of it a terrible idea that runs the risk of creating a, a thinly drawn character. But let's remember who else was a largely off-screen villain. Ernst Blofeld. Mm. How did it work out for him? Safin takes off some uh, familiar bad guy tropes. He speaks softly, has a leer, some henchmen, a deformity, and even gets a now classic, we're not so different, you and I speech. Yeah. Uh, but he's not a very compelling character to me. I don't know what his plan is. I, I don't know what his goals are, ultimately. If I had to guess, I'd say he was insane. Um, which hardly makes his actions relatable. They say every villain is the hero of his own story, but I doubt Safin is the hero of his own story, if you know what I mean, because his actions don't make a lot of sense, mm. which leads me to my final villain problem. Now, almost all Bond films are about 007 investigating a threat, hunting down the villain responsible, and ultimately you know, saving the day. There's wrinkles to that formula, to be sure, but it's still safe to say that Bond is an active protagonist, a man on a frequently assigned mission who drives the action forward. For their part, the villains, with rare exceptions, have their own meticulous plans that have nothing to do with James Bond, at least until Bond starts interfering in the affairs, that is. But that's not the case in No Time for Die. Uh, no Time to Die. As near as I can figure it, both Blofeld and Safin exist almost purely to drive Craig's character arc, pushing towards his next moment of catharsis, his next emotional realisation, and ultimately his final you know, sacrifice. Mm. As I said earlier, I don't understand how Blofeld achieves anything, but it seems to me he does it all for Bond's benefit. The bomb at the beginning, not to kill Bond, it would seem, which surely it should have done, but to drive a wedge in his relationship with Madeline. Insisting on, insisting on Madeline as his therapist, an insane revelation, by the way, surely just to bring Bond and Madeline together. And what of Safin? Why does he kidnap Madeline and, and Mathilde unless it's to draw Bond to his private island so that he can rescue them? If it's out of love or obsession, he's had long enough to act on those feelings before now. Why does he let Mathilde run off unless it's so she can escape so that there can be some sort of happy ending of a, of a sort for Bond. Mm. And why shoot 007, then attempt to fight him unless it's so he can die in the act of cursing Bond? The, these don't appear to me to be well-rounded villains with their own motivations. They're kind of like human-shaped plot points on the way to James Bond's eventual narrative destination. Yeah, with Blofeld is, he doesn't survive the, the, the wreckage um, that was Spectre. Um, uh, no, exactly. And, and what I will say just veering off slightly from this is in many ways, this is Madeline Swan's film. Mm. Uh, it starts and ends with her and it has to be the most low key entrance for Bond in the Craig era, like Bond arriving in the story seen from her perspective. Um, I thought Leah Sadu was very good in this film and possibly the consistency of her partnership with Dan Daniel Craig's Bond allows her to kind of zone in what makes the character tick. It also gives her a bit of a nice arc, especially with the great pre-title sequence. I also like the scene between Madeline and Safin in the office. And this scene has my favourite performance from Sidhu. She really is the heart of the film, and I like that she bookends the story. And considering the butchering of, of Blofeld and Spectre, I kind of thought that they managed to create a solid villain in Safin without being very memorable. But the problem is, as you identify, once he's killed Blofeld, then he doesn't really have a narrative drive. Anything else feels tacked on. Yeah. Because his... His narrative drive is to kill Blofeld, so I get that. Yeah. Um, but once he does that, then you're like, well, and then then I'm also going to destroy the world, and you're like, well, hold on. Yeah, and is he like, 
is he he's selling he's selling this virus, but yeah. he's also going to use it for his own purposes. It seems. So I'm a little confused about whether he's like a businessman, yeah. or, or a madman. Yeah. Ultimately, and um, yeah, yeah. So I'm not really sure what his deal is. No, um, I actually quite like some of the second tier villains. Actually, yeah. uh, David Dinkick's Voldo is like a this hissable, unlikable scientist. Who managed to be pretty funny as well. I really like that. Yeah. And I enjoyed the smarmy Logan Ash, uh, yeah. played by Billy Magnuson. The kind of Weasley bastard you enjoy seeing Bond drop a car on. Yeah. You know, and a pretty sweet for your eyes only um, nod. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. A lot of nods in this film. A lot sure. of nods. <laughs> but that's one I was happy to see re- um, back, you know. Yeah. There's a lot of things I like seeing because they're Bond, mm. you know. Like the, the, the You Only Live Twice tie-in um, of the Poison Garden Right, so mm. the Poison Garden in the final act is taken, and I've talked to you before about how in the novel he has this garden of death mm. that's full of all these poisonous plants. It's so much more vivid and outlandish and ridiculous in the book in a good way, yeah. um, and in this it's really restrained. And I it's, guess it's a metaphor. Yeah, and 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 I guess it's kind of like you should be thankful because they the, they put the garden of death in there, which is one of those almost in modern times you think is unfilmable. You know, you can imagine the garden of death and say like a in a Roger Moore era, like live and let die kind of wacky thing, yeah. but not now. So the man, the man, the fact that they managed to put that in it at all is, is quite amazing really. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, the blowfell prison scene is, is shot well and has a good sense of suspense mm. uh, from Bond and Madeline meeting in the hallway to blowfell being wheeled out. But overall the scene just is where the problems start for me in the film. And I think Craig is really hamming it up here as well. And looking back at Spectre, the misuse of the Blofeld character is the most egregious error of Craig's era. Oh, look, 100%. <laughs> He's poorly written. And while it seems crazy to say it with a double Oscar winner in the role, <laughs> it is really a shame he wasn't cast better. Like someone who had a real bristling chemistry with Craig yeah. and could make something out of that. I just look at it and I look at Christoph Waltz and I go, you don't know what you're doing in this role. You don't know what this character yeah. is. And I can, it feels like that's coming off the screen. Um, and and on Craig as well, there are moments in long-serving Bond's tenures where the actor moves from being Bond into just being the actor. Yeah. So by the time of A View to a Kill, if you watch that, <laughs> Roger Moore is basically playing Roger Moore. Yeah, for sure. Especially at the beginning when he's in like the um, he's in Christopher Walken's, uh, uh, you know equestrian yeah. grand estate. He's basically being Roger Moore, you know? Yeah. And yeah. and it's definitely the same for Sean Connery and Diamonds Are Forever. Well, I think this is true for Craig in, in this film. Um, the Blofeld confrontation or the interactions with Madeline and Mathilde together, um, even Bond chiding M for his clandestine dealings, um, all of these feel like Daniel Craig rather than the interpretation of Bond. Now, whether the, whether the, the good dramatic scenes is, is kind of different question yeah. for me, it's... You know, like I think that the, the scenes with M work on a certain level, just not in a Bond film, at, in a weird kind of way. Yeah, whether it's acted as well is a different question from what, does this suit the character? Yeah. And that's where I kind of question whether it does. I have to give props to Fuganaga's visual touches with some of the blocking and the pacing of the scenes. He does suspense, action, and travelogue quite well. And I think the first act is marvellous. I really did. Oh. I, Hundred percent among the strongest of the Craig era, or even the series, it is a joy to watch that opening hour until about Felix's death. So flashback, Matera sequence, Jamaica, Cuba, just a great chain of sequences yeah. for me. 
Yeah. And it's fun to see like Felix and Bond smiling, sharing beers and playing games. Um, oh, yeah, playing that whole um, coin game or whatever it was. That yeah. yeah it, was, it was nice. It was your real pleasure. And it just takes me back to, like, Dr. No or something like that when you you see them doing similar stuff. Yeah. And I can imagine in years to come on, happily put that first act on quite a, multiple times oh, before, without look, watching the rest the of the The sheer film. joy of watching that Aston Martin driven hard around winding Italian streets, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's so great, you know? Oh, it's fantastic. That opening action sequence is perfect. And, look, like everyone, I suspect, I loved Anna Diamas as Paloma. Mm. Yeah. She is like bright, funny, excitable, and so full of life. And uh, and the scene she had with Bond in Cuba were just enormous fun, which is yeah. something that you know we haven't seen a, a lot of. I think yeah. you know in this, they're a hell of a pair, eh? Yeah. Um, she injected so much energy and a kind of joy into the film that Craig's films don't always have. Um, they can be a you know a little more dour, serious, and weighty. I think, which can of course be fantastic. But it's such a pleasure to have a sequence of such unbridled, you know, just pleasure. Yeah, that's right. Um, it kind of highlights to me how how little was actually done with with little Shana's Lynch Lynch's new double O character. Like much is made in the film and outside of the film more so actually I think um, about what it means to replace Bond and with a black woman no less. But in the film, what does she do? You know? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, she loses out in her first assignment to James. She finds Logan Ash because Bond tips her off. She's too late to be any use when Madeline and her daughter are kidnapped. And aside from a nifty kick in the execution of Voldo, she's um, kind of second string in the finale as well. Bloma, you remember and want more of, but unfortunately, the most memorable thing about Lynch's character is her teachiness around what it means, to, uh, what the double O number means, you know, mm. um, and the fact that she gets cool clothes and sunglasses and a sweet car, it feels like a bit of a missed opportunity to me. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I, I think I think you're right there. The Paloma character, especially, just has co-writer Phoebe Waller-Bridge written it all oh. over it. <laughs> it's like, oh, uh, let me guess who wrote that. Yeah, scene. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, true. Yeah, cool, I cool. mean, that would be straight out of Killing Eve, you know, all of that stuff. Um, but also, again, the, the just the pure joy of that sequence, of that Cuba sequence, is great. You yeah, know? Like, that bit where they stop the middle of the gunfight and they pour drinks at yeah. the bar that's half destroyed at that point. That's enormous fun. Yeah, and, you know, that... The, the sequence where she flips around and kills all those people. And uh, ah. I mean, I, you know, I don't know how much gaffer tape she had on that dress to, <laughs> but that's that kind of, that's that, what it highlights is that glamour and ridiculous kind of perfection that yeah. Bond films have, you yeah. know, like where you can, you know, kind of dress that way or Bond's falling off a thing and then and just like and, beating up people in six inch heels. Yeah. You know, and like I said, you know, Bond falls off, you know the balcony, and then just like, oh, I'll just grab a drink while I'm here, and yeah, you know, it's it, yeah, it's, it's theoretically possible, but it's ludicrous. You know, you yeah. never do that, but that's the joy, and that's what that sequence, you know, really means to me. Yeah, um, and yeah, I, I I really enjoyed it. I mean, but controversial as it may be, for me, the pre-title sequence, the Matera sequence, is the only truly great action sequence of the film. I do love the Cuba stuff, um, and it's fun with many of the Bond trappings. Um, it has good cross-cutting of action, but the material sequence is special because, as you say, the loaded DB5, the the location, what's at stake emotionally, it has many satisfying layers. Oh, the, the bit where he's just sitting in the car, just almost comatose, his bullets are starting to pound through yeah. that window, and he's just, you know, he's rage-filled and hurt, and it looks like he wants to end it all himself there. It's, mm. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and that's really good, and it, and it brings, it lets Sadhu do stuff as well. Yeah. Um, which is really good. And, um, you know, but I, I think as it goes on, the, the, the action sequences kind of deteriorate. Like, I, I think 100%. it starts really well with Matera. Cuba sequence is great. 
and then you get the Range Rover smash up in Norway. Well, it's not very inventive. Like, he just kind of, like, oh, leans into the people. The car chase part I don't like. No, but, but the, the, the stuff in the mist is the, great. The stuff in the Norwegian woods. <laughs> um, I'd love to be able to work a Beatles. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I love that part of it. But you're right, the car chase itself. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and I don't and I don't really care for much of the end. No, the end is sold on the island. Just gets really impersonal. It's kind of like out-of-focus figures drop to the sound of machine gun fire. Even though I do like the ambition of the kind of, there's a kind of a climactic one shot where they go through, um, and we've spoken about this before, and specifically in the Bond series, especially in the Brosnan era, when people kind of wield machine guns around corners of hallways, I just start checking out. Oh, it's like, well, just chop through these dudes and we'll get through. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you already know how I feel about that because I've talked about it enough. But I'm also a little jaded by oneers now, like. It feels like everyone's trying to slip in a one, like it's some sort of action director bucket list requirement, you know? Mm. Crossing off a box on your beat em up bingo. You've <laughs> got to bring something else to the table for me nowadays, I think. Yeah. Like it's not just enough to say, yeah, I can film this sequence. And like I, I shared something on, I think, spoiler alert, which was a, a, a Hong Kong action film with a one that included a flashback in the one. <laughs> yeah. You know, I want to see people doing stuff like that, <laughs> yeah, you know? If you're going to do a one shot, you better be, you know, leaping through through time and you know yeah yeah just doing something really innovative with it yeah look i just want to uh, briefly touch on the music um music is a really yeah. important part of 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 the bond series for me and um oh, look i actually really enjoyed hans zimmer's music he's no john barry which is a bad thing but he's no thomas newman which is a good thing <laughs> um <laughs> and thomas newman did uh specter and skyfall and look there's some good tunes in there but um Hans Zimmer does some real standout tracks here. Cuba Chase is just exhilarating fun. So obviously this is, you know, the kind of Cuban-infused flavor of yeah. fight sequence. Music's brilliant. Um, there's, uh, you know, a lovely track, Matera, both kind of quiet and ominous. And there are a few tracks in recent Bond history that are as moving as Final Ascent. So when you actually hear that in isolation, as I am a sad Bond tragic and I listen to Bond soundtracks, um, out of context, uh, when Final Ascent comes on, I am transported back to that, those final moments, and it is really effective. Look, I don't mind Billie Eilish's title song, um, but it suffers from being the third downbeat Bond song in a row and doesn't do much for me um, with the accompanying titles. You know, they aren't as good as Casino Royale or Skyfall. They're not bad. They're solid, especially the effect of the bullets turning into streaks that show the character's face, reminiscing of the, reminiscent of the bursting missiles streaking in the air in the, in the climax of the film. So I, I like that. But if I'm conflicted on anything musically, it is the use of we have all the time in the world. I thought you would be. Yeah, it, it's both nice but also lazy. And it shows that no one currently has the balls to attempt to write a new timeless love song for a Bond theme. Oh, we've got melancholic tunes like Writings on the Wall and No Time to Die of the Wazoo. But a pure love song? Something as magical as what John Barry, Hal David, and Louis Armstrong created, it's just beyond the current crop. Maybe we're living in the wrong time for it. I don't know. But regardless, they've co-opted on a Majesty's Secret Service to sell their own new tragedy. Yeah. I both like it and I scoff at its inclusion. <laughs> and their song means so much to Bond fans. It means so much to me, as you I know. know. I know it does. And now a generation will associate that with No Time to Die rather than on a Majesty's Secret Service. So, uh, yeah, I'm kind of on the yeah, fence with that yeah. one. I, I remember sitting in the cinema hearing that and thinking, whew, Duncan's going to have thoughts. <laughs> yeah. The instrumental version, like, okay. But then slapping that on the end yeah. was like the full song was like, okay. 
let's talk about that ending, Simon. Yes. And you've been warned about spoilers, listeners, but it's been out for a while now. Look, I've been a hardcore Bond fan since the 80s, and so it was strange that on first viewing, that ending didn't really affect me one way or the other. Yeah. Unlike Craig's Bond, I didn't get weepy, and neither was I angry. Yeah. I kind of just shrugged my shoulders and went, well, I guess that happened. Yeah. If you're going to give him a kid, you may as well kill him. And although I think introducing a child in peril as motivation for a third act is about as pedestrian as you can get. She, she, I've, I've also got to jump in. She gets out of peril in the most ridiculous manner as oh. well. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just, yeah. I mean, that's where you know you don't really, like you were saying, everything's heading towards this direction and plot strands that we've created, we, we can't even bother getting out of this in any kind of inventive yeah. way, which is irritating. So Craig's Bond dies. Yeah. It makes sense. He kind of revels in the pain and misery. But 007, who is the opposite of the classic Connery Moore cinematic Bond, mm. they always smoothly navigated their way through obstacles and villains, rarely rising to the bait, and ended up with the woman. This Bond has to go through like the nine circles of hell in every <laughs> movie, ends up with the main female character once. He spends his last movie finding out he has a daughter that he wasted his last five years of his life, and then he dies. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess the lack of investment for me personally is because I was kind of taken out of the film at key moments, and a lot of them were signposting. I went into this really spoiler-free. and Yeah, me too. But I was like, signpost, 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 that they were going to do, they were going to kill him off. Yeah. Now, I don't know they were going to kill him off, but it's always been something they've talked about with Bond, even before Craig, but definitely in Craig's era, they've talked about, hey, maybe he'll be killed off. They've been saying that for years. So I hear we have all the time in the world theme, and I wonder, why have they done this? Yeah. He visits Vesper's grave, and I'm thinking, really? He's still cut up about this? Um, they introduced the child, and I thought, yep, they're going to kill him. <laughs> as soon as they introduced the child, I was like, he's dead. And I love the attempt for, uh, to make us believe that it's not his child. It's somebody's what like, was that? Well, how are we not going to? Of course. Of course it's his child. There's no way I'm not going to believe that. And for what end? Yeah. But what's the point of that? I don't understand. I don't understand why they did that. Hmm. Um, and in some ways it was merciful relief. Like I was glad for the character. He suffered so much continually throughout his tenure. That's what the filmmakers act, and actor wanted this Bond to be. Yeah. Just as Roger Moore barely suffers at all. <laughs> like he, he barely gets a hair out of place. Yeah. You know, yeah. Craig's the other the other extreme. Yeah. yeah. Look, I said at the beginning, there's certain things I don't want to see in my Bond. I don't want to see Bond cry and lose his temper too much and tell people he loves them and have a kid. That's just not what I want to Man, you Bond. got it. you got all of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And most significantly, I'm not a fan of killing Bond. It's just not something I wanted to see. Especially seeing as it has been the trendy thing to do for the last few years. I don't think... Something that bothered me a little bit in the fallout of this was people continually saying, it's brave to kill off Bond. Not after Wolverine, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Superman and Iron Man have all been killed off in the last five years alone. And just like Superman, Bond will come back. Like It's, it's kind of a sacrifice, but a completely meaningless sacrifice. Yeah, you, know, you kill him off, and then you've got James Bond will James return. James Bond will return, yeah. And I'm like, well, I know you're not going to get rid of this character, so what does this really mean? Yeah. You're killing off Craig's Bond? Okay, fine. But look, as the sky fell and Bond stood tall, as those missiles came bearing down on him, what I felt was this is the destruction of the Bond series as we know it. Sure. It signals the end of the Craig era for sure, and probably in an appropriate way. 
but it also ends everything that went before. The vague hopes people had of Bond getting his Vesper obsession out of his system and getting on with the missions. <laughs> I thought it was done at the end of Quantum of Solace. I thought it was done at the end of Skyfall. And I knew better than to think it was done at the end of Spectre, though. But thankfully, it was ended with the biggest full stop possible. In a way, I choose to focus on the positive of decisions I disagree with. I'm glad the Craig era is over. I'm glad it was a good film. And I'm glad they did it their way and that it was self-contained. I mean, imagine if they had still made Casino Royale, but not as a reboot, but still killed him off in No Time to Die. They would really be killing off the bond of Connery through Brosnan as well. Yeah, which they haven't done. Which they haven't done. So I am thankful that at least that happened. So throughout the 15 years of Craig, I've come to the realisation that the days of consequence-free, fun, one-off adventures of a man saving the world with a vodka martini and a raised eyebrow are gone and will never come back. And what I choose to raise my glass and eyebrow to are the 20 007 adventures we got that more or less had this ethos at the heart of their creation. Sure, there is a license to kill and the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service and parts of the Brosnan era that buck that trend, but by and large, we have those gloriously varied and largely fun films to watch. Yeah. Remember our times in the cinema watching those films for the first time. And much like Madeline, to a child at the end of No Time to Die, you may find yourself breaking out the Connery and Moore films, looking at your loved one and saying, let me tell you a story about a man called Bond, James <laughs> Bond. <laughs> Look, honestly, I hope from here James Bond could return to one of spy romps every couple of years. Yep. Like, I would like to see that, you know. Um, this film feels like it has so many responsibilities to its star, to his films that came before, to its own newly minted mythos. And maybe we can scale back a bit on the need for continuity going forward, you know. Mm-hmm. After all, uh, maybe it's a bit too much to expect an audience to remember why Mr. White is important, much less shed a tear for the memory of Vesper Lind, whose on-screen death was 15 years ago. Yeah. Like, you know, we're old enough, but imagine if you were 21 and you walk into the cinema to watch No Time to Die. Why should you care about a character who died when you were six? Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. that's a hell of a lot for this <laughs> film series to, that's right. to carry with it on its back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I would quite like to see just... Um, oh, look, yeah, I mean, and, and as I've ranted for the last half an hour on, I, it's always been the thing I've wanted to get back to is those one-off missions. Yeah. It's not even the tone or... It's not even the tone or the decisions to kill Bond or that kind of stuff that I'm worried about. It's a one-off missions. Bond films are supposed to be... Um, you, the, the glory of them is you can put any Bond film on before the Craig era and just go, cool. Yeah. What are you in the yeah. mood for? Look, um, you don't, I don't need to know anything about that character. I don't have to have to have seen the last four films to understand what Bond is. And I'm sorry, but Bond is not doesn't have the the vast mythology that say like a Marvel universe does, or multiple characters, or you know what I mean? Like it doesn't have those things. Yeah. It just has Bond, and he's just a guy. It's not that interesting to find out his backstory and delve into his psychology. Yeah, it's yeah. okay to do it for a movie or two or touch. Or scene, yeah, yeah. But to turn it into, like you say, fifteen years of it is just like phew. that's a that's a big ask for an audience. Huh? It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah uh, look, I hundred percent agree. I mean, we've talked about this a lot, you know, off my largely, but I've been watching over the last couple of years, you know, watch going through the series and watching them, and out of order as well, just randomly deciding with uh, me and my wife, what do you feel like? Do you feel like a Connery? Do you feel like a Moore? Do you feel like a, a Brosnan? And yeah. we watch it, and um, like you say, you can do that. You can throw them on. There's a little mm-hmm. bit of continuity. It's not. It's, it's, it, it doesn't affect that viewing order, really. Mm, you know? That's right. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, I kind of, you know, we watched Die Another Day, yeah. you know, one of the worst Bond films there is. 
but about an hour through it, I was thinking, this is great. Yeah. You know, it was delivering everything I wanted. Didn't in the last half an hour or so, but, yeah. you know, for a while there, it was great. Um, and, I, you know, that's the kind of reason you put that DVD player yeah, in and, you know, right. sit down and watch. And also allows you to do those kind of nosebleed changes. I mean, imagine having to sit through five connected films that are all of the tone of Die Another Day. <laughs> it's just like, instead of Casino Royale. It's I was like, going to no. say, when you were talking about that, it's like, so, uh, you know, obviously the Craig ones are standalones. Like, yeah. they don't follow on from the... Yeah. The pre- so the next one should be a sequel to Die Another Day. Yeah. That, that's what that it should be. That would be great. I mean, I bet Brosnan would be up for it. Yeah. Uh, I bet Hal Berry would be up for it. Yeah. Yeah. They're still on that shack at the end, in the, in the where in the middle of nowhere. They've been the there for like eighteen years, yeah. basically. Yeah, he's you know in retirement, like Craig's Bond does it periodically. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's great. Uh, look, so um, theories about how they reboot this, how how they kick this off again. Okay, so um, so I think that they were. I think they're going to take their time. I don't think they're going to be in a rush to do this. I've always said, like, the thing is with Die Another Day, when that came out and it was rubbish, you're like, yeah, that's fine, but there'll be a new Bond film in two years. Whereas with Craig, you didn't have that. The problem, to some extent, is Craig is who he is, right? And yeah. he he does put a lot of himself into the film. Um, and I think it taxes him, you know? And I don't think he sure. really wants to do it all the time, but at the same time, it's this kind of... He's conflicted on it. I want someone who's just like, yeah, that I'm going to do this and this is going to be fun, like a Roger Moore was, or Brosnan, mm, you yeah. know? Like they clearly had good fun doing it. Um, and so, yeah, so I kind of hope that they get someone like that and that they just kind of reboot it and it just starts up and it's it's like a normal Bond film would be. Yeah. Tone, you just do whatever you want with the tone. I don't mind. I, it's the tone of Craig, you know, I, I love the tone of the yeah. films. But... Um, yeah, just pump them out more regularly and I'll, I'll forgive the misses more if you're pumping them out every, you know, can't do them every two years like they used to, but every three years would be nice. Every three years would be good. And hopefully everyone's back on board. We don't need to have all these um, origin story for Bond. We don't need to introduce Money Penny and Q yeah. and M individually. They, they're just there. You know yep. what I mean? So you just get on with the mission and do yeah, it. Yeah, just walks into the office, throws his hat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, gets his... Eyes only folder. Yep. Here you go. Ah, well, we've got this, um, you know. Yeah. We've got this industrialist in Greece or somewhere, you know. It's like, oh, there's been a bit of a, you know, he's missing a ship or something. Yeah, you know, totally. Whatever. Just like, yeah. You know, get me back to the more 70s films. Oh, my I'm... gosh. Absolutely. <laughs> Look, here's how I think they do it, okay? Yeah. Uh, the next film's pre-title sequence starts by recreating the ending of t- No Time to Die. <laughs> the Rock, I just Elba. Tom Holland or Tom Hardy bleeding out on top of that base on the sea on the CB to poor sobbing Leah Sadu with their daughter recast to look more like The Rock, Idris Elba, Tom Holland or Tom Hardy. Uh, <laughs> it looks like it's all over as the missiles begin to fall and then Q yells out, suddenly remembering, Bond, remember your rocket shoes. <laughs> and then The Rock, Idris Elba, Tom Holland or Tom Hardy, as Bond says, well, sounds like this really is no time to die. Before activating his rocket shoes, flying up as the island explodes behind him, roaring towards the camera and into the opening title sequence for the next film. Job done. Brilliant. I yeah. love it. I love it. There you go. Yeah. Or he's got one of those, he remembers at the last minute, he's got one of those rocket repelling um, balloons that he can climb inside oh, of. You know, like Union in, Jack. Yeah, yeah. On the outside you know, like of. In, in The World's Not Enough, where he's got like the avalanche-proof jacket that pops out and turns yeah, into like yeah. a, a, a globe he can jump inside. Yeah. Or something like that. Bounce. Rockets bouncing off it. Bounces, rolls down the mountain, lands on the boat with this woman in a bikini, you know, like um, yeah. um, Dalton. 
Yeah. You, you know. Yeah. And then it's just like, she's got champagne and caviar and is like, well, it's two days journey to Tokyo. What are we going to do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, we're off. And we're off. We're great. Yeah. Look, uh, well, my last words on this is, you know, I will just articulate again, especially after the last two years, what an absolute joy it is to watch Bond in the cinema. I was mm. really worried that I wasn't going to get to see it, mm. this in the cinema. And yeah, it felt like maybe burned. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, talk about first world problems, but um, it was the only, you know, I've seen every Bond in the cinema since 87, so I was really amping for this. And and um, I really enjoyed this the second time I watched it. Yeah. Um, the first time, uh, you know, you, you, you know, there, there was moments in there in the first time that I was really like, you know, quite giddy. And I was like, oh, again, as I say, mainly in that first hour. Yeah. Um, and I will never take it for granted that, you know, we got to see these in the cinema. It was especially wonderful to view it after watching all of, all four of Craig's other Bond films in a row. Yeah. Um, I, d- I, did that af- I did that after I watched it the first time and then before I watched it the second. And No Time to Die helps with the enjoyment of Spectre quite a lot. And No Time to Die at least has the courage of its convictions. Whereas Spectre seems conflicted about what's it, what it wants to do, especially tonally. Mm. Um, and there is a lot of love and care put into No Time to Die. It is easily the best swan song for a long-serving Bond actor by light years, actually. Mm. Um, but by the same token, I think that in future years, it will be low down on my rewatch list because of that ending. Yeah. Because I do, won't always be in the mood for a downer of a film where my favorite hero dies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Eon Productions have not simply pumped this one out. And considering the false starts, the directors leaving for creative differences, and a different reaction to the preceding film, a reluctant star and release delays, the fact that No Time to Die is as good as it is, it's actually quite amazing. No Time to Die is not in my top five list, but I can see why it would already be making other people's top five lists. Right. The series is so varied and a rich tapestry of styles, eras, decades, actors. It's so wonderful to see it continuing 60 years on and also continuing to surprise. Hmm. I love all the Bonds. I love From Rush With Love. I love Moonraker. I love Live and Let Die. I love No Time to Die. I can't wait to see where the series goes next, especially without Craig, but also, and this goes to where you asking where it goes next. I'm hoping that they don't have writers Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. They are responsible for all the personalising of the plots since the world is not enough. Yeah. I'm sure they're not the only ones. I'm sure the, yeah. the, the actors yeah. and, and Eon themselves, you know, encouraged it. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, Purvis and Wade have done great, important work in the Craig era, but I also want to see a change and at present, I believe they're even more significant than the actor. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd really like to see a kind of a flush out of of that kind of old guard, you know, um, and uh, yeah, but you know, uh, like I say, I I enjoyed this film, and uh, I would watch that first hour especially quite a lot, and it's a soundtrack I listen to quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely the best soundtrack since Quantum Solace. Right. Sure. From 1962 to 2022, across 25 feature films, the James Bond series has given us so much pleasure. So many iconic villains, so many fantastic gadgets, so many wonderful locations, and as we're about to discover in this top five, so many great, great moments. 
So, Duncan, which moment is your first pick in our list of five great Bond moments? Well, look, I could probably do about a top 30 Bond moments. I know you could. So I've been a little sneaky and mashed a bunch of them into three kind of categories. Um, They're what I call the Bondian elements. It's some nebulous kind of categories, building blocks that separate Bond from many other adventure heroes. But when they appear and you can see them, they genuinely bring a smile to my face. So the first one I'm going for is in Dr. No, uh, what I call the killing of a sacred dent. Um, (laughs) If there is a moment that indicates the ruthless professionalism of 007, it is the first Bond film, Dr. No. A man, Professor Dent, sneaks into Bond's room at night to kill him and unloads the contents of his gun into the figure in the bed. But Bond is waiting behind the door, seated next to a bottle of vodka and a pack of guards, and a pack of cards with his Walther PPK pistol with silencer drawn. He tells the man to drop the gun, and he obliges. As Bond extracts information out of the would-be assassin, the man pulls the gun slowly toward him. He lunges at the gun, aims it at Bond, and pulls the trigger. There is just a click. Bond casually looks at the stunned assassin and tells him, that's a Smith & Wesson, and you've had your six. He then pulls the trigger, firing a bullet into the man, dropping him to the ground, seemingly dead. And after a beat... He shoots a second bullet into the prone body's back. Now, in this moment, it just shows the brutal reality of Bond's job. But also, to go back to 1962, heroes did not shoot unarmed people in the back. (laughs) What is interesting is that it feels in sync with the literary Bond, yet it is one of the few things in the movie that didn't come from the book. In fact, the Professor Dent character is not even in the book. It is a decision that is born from the filmmakers, and it was apparently even longer, with four shots, which were edited down to two. So you can imagine him just putting three extra shots into into a guy's (laughs) spine. Uh, But there's something just so callous about it. And what sells it the most is Sean Connery. There are few actors who can match Connery in his prime for sheer presence. He looks absolutely lethal, just chain-smoking cigarettes by lighting one off another as he trains his gun on his target. He is composed with a confidence bordering on arrogance if he wasn't using it on such evil enemies. Um, It would also be the blueprint for so many other cold-blooded moments in the series. Roger Moore kicking an assassin's car off the cliff and for your eyes only. Brosnan point-blank shooting an unarmed villainess in The World Is Not Enough. Mm. Dalton throwing a suitcase full of money at a corrupt cop to knock him into a shark tank and license to kill. All these moments are standout and they are peppered throughout the 60 years of Bond and it all starts in this moment in the debut film. Yeah, fantastic stuff. Mm. Great choice. Cheers, man. Mm. Look, I'm starting my list with the fight that sets the bar for all James Bond fisticuffs to follow, and in my opinion, is never surpassed in its gritty, brutal savagery. I'm talking, of course, about the showdown between Red Grant and 007 in the claustrophobic confines of a cabin aboard a speeding train in From Russia With Love. But let's step back a bit, because good fight scenes aren't usually just about the fight itself. They're about everything that gets us to the moment. And that's one of the things From Russia With Love does so damn well. Only the second Bond film, it's the first to introduce the pre-credit action scene, which every subsequent subsequent film would use. And already, director Terence, and already director Terence Young and his writers plan the expectations by having Bond killed and then revealed to be a fake. Just a target for the training purposes of the menacing Spectre agent Red Grant, played with grim determination by Robert Shaw. Look, and I've said it a thousand times, but I prefer a Bond film with a great villain. And this one is and this film is packed with them. But also like how dedicated they are to taking down Bond. It's set up so early and it hangs over the film. And it's not like Bond is passive. He willingly walks into what he and we believe to be a trap. Which is a great piece of storytelling and character work as well. 
So by the time we get to the confrontation aboard a train, we're already longing for this meeting. And despite the fact that this is James freaking Bond, we maybe start to wonder if this trained brood of a man who's dedicated himself to defeating 007 might just do it. It's one of the few times there's like palpable danger in a Bond fight. So onto the fight and what makes it so great on top of the excellent build-up is the rawness and closeness of the combat. Trapped in the confines of a tiny train cabin, there's no space to work with. Little chance for either man to get a moment of rest or use any distance. It's also hectic and brutal, frantic and surprisingly bloody. A stray gun shot blows out a light and a boot shatters a window meeting. The fight pl- takes place in eerie half-light and the only music is the whistle of wind and the percussive sound of the rattle of the tracks. Connery's fear and the rage of Shaw make us believe in the stakes and help sell us on how much this fight means. Legend has it that though stuntmen filmed the sequence, only one brief shot makes the finished film. The rest is pure Connery and Shaw hurling themselves around, breaking doors and windows in each other. For me, this is the gold standard for Bond fight scenes. Absolutely. It's great. And and I really love Robert Shaw and Sean Connery. I mean, like, two just dripping with masculinity. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like Ernest Hemingway or something. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Kind of this, this brutal fight. And you can imagine those guys in their prime just wanting to go that extra, mm. you know, level of, yeah. uh, and just completely throw each other around yeah. and, and look really vicious. I'm sure they weren't, I'm sure they were pulling their punches, but oh, I'm, for sure. Sure, I'm sure the grappling they weren't. I'm sure they were re- there's that part where Connery, like, was like grabbing his face. Grabbing and his face, and you can see Connery, just the anger in Connery's face where he's just like pushing the guy's yeah. chin back and stuff. And um, yeah, it's a magnificent sequence. It really is. And I love at the end where Connery has to take a moment to compose himself yeah. afterwards. Like, you know, he doesn't like, um, you know, he's got that line of like, you won't be needing these or something. Yeah. But it takes him a moment to do it. He has to like, you know, yeah. calm himself down and, yeah. and wipe his hands. And I like the fact that it, that sells what he's been through as well, which is great. Yeah, you know? it, it's really good. And the only thing I say that kind of irritates me a little bit is this is so good that there's a lot of fuck sequences after yeah. that that don't get back to that. It takes a long time to get back up to the kind of level of yeah. of that, which oh, is totally. frustrating. I mean, that must have been mind-blowing in 1963 to see that. Yeah. And then they veer away from it for quite a long time. I, I was going to say the, the only other thing that bothers me about it, and we've talked about this before, is that it takes place too far from the end for the film for me. Like, yeah. It should have been restructured somehow so that this is yeah. one of the last things that happens. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, not not... Not with a speedboat chase and everything yeah. in a helicopter and you know that's right. That stuff should have come before because it's such a highlight. You yeah, know? that's yeah. right. For a film that isn't a highlight of the series, there is still plenty of standout moments in the awkwardly titled Octopussy. <laughs> um, even more creepy if you pronounce it with a Cheshire cat delivery, like villain Louis Jardin, who says Octopussy, Octopussy. If you listen to him, that's what he says. It's really <laughs> creepy. Um, the pre-title sequence with the Acrostar jet, the creepy chase of a clown through woods at night by two knife-wielding twins, uh, the chase to defuse an atomic bomb. But the standout for me is the traditional villain versus Bond face-off under a civilized exterior. It's a tradition that happens throughout the series. Bond playing golf with Goldfinger, doing a spot of game hunting with Drax and Moonraker, hell even, you know. Um, sword fighting and sword dying fighting, day, yeah. yeah, with Gustav Graves. Cards with Le Chiffre and Casino Royale. But the most baller move is Roger Moore's 007 and Octopussy in a game of backgammon with the main villain, Kamal Khan, played by Louis Jordan. Khan has cheated a poor sap out of his winnings by using loaded dice that roll the magical double sixes whenever he needs, explaining his luck away by saying, it's all in the wrist. So when Bond needs double sixes playing against Khan later, 
The serpentine nemesis hisses that to win on the last round, Bond will need a lot of luck. Moore raises his eyebrow, as only Roger Moore can, and says, Oh, luck? Well, then I'll use your lucky dice. And adds, it's all on the wrist, just before he rolls the dice on the table. The audience that are watching gasps, but Bond doesn't look down, instead keeping his unblinking stare on his vanquished enemy, and without knowing that they're actually there, he says, double sixes, fancy that. It is an absolutely brilliant moment, and once again feeds into the multitude of Bondian elements I love. The prodding of the hornet's nest of the villain, and the one-upmanship that Bond invariably wins. Like when the villain Largo shows off his skeet-shooting abilities in Thunderball, and Bond says, it seems terribly difficult, before shooting a shotgun from his hip without barely looking up and blowing a clay pigeon out of the sky. And he says, oh no, it isn't, is it? <laughs> it's this level of, dare I say it, trolling, as the kids would say, um, that makes Bond so fun and more just nails it with coolness. And yeah, it is cool. It's Super a great cool. moment. But that was the first of the Bonds that I, I watched now in a rewatch period. I mean, I've seen all, all of them before, but yeah. so uh, i got a real soft spot for this film, <laughs> even though it's got him running around dressed as a clown, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be t- you want to talk about films that go on too long, and the end of that. It's just oh, like, wow. wow. How many more climaxes are you going to have? Yeah, it's yeah, ridiculous. yeah. This is like Return of the King. It's just yeah. crazy. Okay, for my second, look, most people have their favourite Bond. Mine is Connery, for a whole lot of reasons, but I like all of them in different ways. I like the almost ferocious intensity of Craig, especially coming on the back of the wretched diner of the day. But I also like Brosnan's suave action hero. I like the steely edge of Dalton, and I like the fact that Lazenby only made one. And I like more, mostly for the laughs. Sure, when he started, he was young enough and handsome and athletic enough to be a believable super spy, but it feels like he got old fast and stayed around a little longer than he should. Fortunately, he never lost the ability to raise an eyebrow and roll out a double entendre that would make me smile and chuckle to myself. But my favourite of these lines isn't actually uttered by Moore, Moore at all, though it comes at the end of my favourite Moore entry, the widely uneven but bonkers fun of Bond and space entry Moonraker from 1979. I love Moonraker. Oh, we both love Moonraker. Mm-hmm. It's something we can, we can, pardon the pun, Bond on. Yes. <laughs> now, by the time we get to Moonraker, there's already a bit of a trend for Bond being discovered in the midst of a post-successful mission intimate moment with his female co-star. In The Spy Love Me, he memorably responds to the question, Bond, what do you think you're doing with keeping the British end up, sir? Which is pretty great. 1974's The Man with the Golden Gun has fun with the name Goodnight and the word coming. Classic stuff. But nothing for me reaches the heights, shall we say of Bond returning from space aboard a shuttle in Moonraker, enjoying a private zero-G moment with Dr. Goodhead, when Mission Control decides to activate the TV monitors to see what's going on, with the footage beamed directly to the White House in Buckingham Palace. (laughs) (laughs) Q gets the killer line this time. In response to, my God, what's Bond doing? He replies with, I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. (laughs) It's brilliant. Made even better by Bond looking down the camera and doing his eyebrows straight after. It's for me... The morest of moments and one of my favourite gags in the franchise. Yep, fantastic. Can't disagree with that. It's an absolutely brilliant line. Uh, it's so great. Uh, <laughs> they must be so pleased with themselves when they wrote that line. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's just slightly sidebar with Moonraker. We both enjoy it. And mm. Moonraker, Moonraker, before Die Another Day came out, Moonraker was the Die Another Day before that, basically. Like, people always said, Moonraker's ridiculous. I've always had a soft spot for it, and and I really enjoy it. Um, and there's so many great moments in it. There's as many silly moments in The Spy Love Me as there are in Moonraker, basically. Mm. Um, there's the gondola scene in, in Moonraker, which yeah. is terrible. And, yeah, but as we've said, the thing about the gondola scene is it's insane, but it comes not long after a really creepy scene of a woman being chased through the 
by yeah. dogs through the woods, which yeah. is like we said before, come, feels like it comes out of a giallo film. It yeah. could be, you know, an Argento film or something. And then it's like uh, more in a gondola, right? Driving through. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I've got a real soft spot. Um, the director, Lewis Gilbert, um, who famously did Elfie, the Michael Caine movie. Yeah. Um, he did uh, You Only Live Twice, The Spy Love Me, and Moonraker. And I've got a soft spot for him because I think he actually, out of all the Bond directors, he has one of the best eyes, especially for scope. Mm. And those three films are about as big as Bond gets as well. Mm. So, um, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I've got a soft spot for Moonraker. Um, yeah. Look, I'm, and my final one is uh, I thought long and hard about these three Bond moments I chose. And I found a cheeky way to talk about everything with this last choice. <laughs> and... Um, I chose the Living Daylights pre-title sequence. It has so many of the Bondian, Bondian elements I, I love. It has the iconic gun barrel sequence set to the Bond theme, which always subtly changes with different flavors between films. It zooms onto an exotic, striking location, this one, the Rock of Gibraltar. And then into M's office, where he is briefing three double O's. We don't see their faces, just hear their boss's command. To simulate an infiltration of Gibraltar's British compound in a training exercise. Then the back of the office opens to reveal that it's actually a plane <laughs> which the three figures then jump out of and skydive onto the famous rock. They are unaware that a real-life assassin is hunting them on the rock, and he kills one of the double O's who falls to his death, and that's when another double O who is scaling a rock face turns to reveal the face of Timothy Dalton's James Bond for the first time. He chases the fleeing assassin and jumps on top of the jeep the killer has stolen. They fight as the jeep careens down the narrow street from the top of the rock. Knife fights, head butts, avoiding innocent pedestrians and dynamite stacked in the back of the jeep <laughs> until a vehicle smashes through the stone wall and flies off the edge of a vast cliff. Bond deploys his parachute and escapes as the assassin and the jeep explode. He lands on a yacht with a bikini-clad woman who offers him a glass of champagne and he tells her his name is Bond, James Bond. Now, the reason I've gone through this rather drawn-out description of the sequence is that it contains so many elements of the Bondian myth is to be a perfect template for what makes the character and series so cool. It has the gun barrel, the Bond theme, multiple double O's on a mission together, a nice rarity that only happens a few times in the series, Thunderball, Goldeneye, The Living Daylights, and of course, No Time to Die. And there is the reveal of a new James Bond, always a fun moment that Connery, Brosnan, and Dalton's eras especially nail well. There is a car chase, thrilling stunts, an inventive escape, a suitably impressed woman offering consequence-free thrills, and the iconic line, Bond, James Bond. And most importantly, it is set to the final score of the legendary 007 composer, John Barry. Uh, the Living Daylight score is among his finest Bond work, and I'm always thankful Dalton got at least one John Barry score to accompany his adventures. And then there is the concept of the pre-title sequence itself that you mentioned before. It's something that the Bond series, I'm not sure if it invented, but it certainly popularized and made its own. It's a magical little intro that often contains the film's best moments. Goldeneye's damn bungee jump, Casino Royale showing both Bond kills that qualify him to be a double O, uh, Spectre's Day of the Dead sequence, Quantum of Solace's adrenaline-fueled car chase, and of course, The Spy Who Loves Me's still astounding ski off a mountain. Amazing. These are terrific, iconic moments that thrill and get the viewer invested before the story's even begun. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Fantastic. I yeah, somehow managed choice. to talk about like just everything. 17 different Bond films in there, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> not three moments. But yeah, I, I, think, I think they all have those kind of, they all contain those, those things that make Bond so special. Yeah. 
Spoiler alert. Okay, and so that was spoiler alert episode 98 for no, February. 98. 98. 98. So 99 next time, and then the big 100. It is. Yeah, it is. so close. Yeah. So we don't get nervous on the way to our Tano. Yeah, that's right. You know. Yeah, we're going to have to do like an Adam Sandler film for our 100th, aren't we? we have to do Are we? Like, I don't know. We have to do something. Right, you mean finish our, you know, get to 100, how we started. Yeah, yeah, that's number right. One. Yeah. yeah. Didn't we celebrate our 50th doing Pixels or something like that? Oh, Pixels. <laughs> Because we started with Adam Sandler. Yeah, we sure did. with it. And yeah. we did Pixels and um, I'm pretty sure we did Pixels. For a yeah, that could, that could be true. Yeah. So I don't even know if he's got anything coming out. It'll be like a Netflix movie or something. Yeah, like. yeah. I'm sure we'll be able to find something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. If only there was a new Sandler film. If out. only. How many times have you said that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> cool. Hey, so... Um, so what are we going out to? Uh, oh, well... This, um, this month. Th- well, this month we decided we'd go out to the... Um, would go out to Final Ascent uh, by Hans Zimmer. So this is obviously from No Time to Die. Yep. Um, and this is when Bond's climbing up to mm. meet his fate, basically. Yep. Um, and yeah, yeah. And and I really enjoy the soundtrack. I, like I say, I think this is a really solid soundtrack. Yep. And uh, this is quite quite a moving piece of music, actually, from Hans Zimmer, even just on its own. But especially with the context of, of, of what what occurs. Yeah. So um yeah, so look, thanks for indulging uh, my my bond love. Yeah. Um, no, great. <laughs> I'm glad to be on this journey with you to be honest. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so thanks everyone for listening and um, we will see you all next month. All right, take care everyone. Cheers. What's Bond doing? I think he's attempting re-entry, sir.